So now we're moving on through the same chapter. You really, at least I haven't figured out yet how to do a whole chapter in the book of Luke in one uh, 30-minute setting. It's just too much going on. But after a short vacation, uh, they arrive back in Capernaum. Now, we know that they're staying at Peter's house, and we know that it's Peter and Andrew's house because Mark tells us in chapter 1 that when they came out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So we knew they lived in the area, but it implies, at least in Mark chapter 1, that uh, they lived, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew lived in the same house. Now, you know, his mother, Peter's mother-in-law was there as well. Whether she was there visiting because she was sick, as uh, the uh, movie The Chosen implies, or whether... She lived there permanently, we don't know, but it wasn't uncommon for family members to share houses in those days, as it's not uncommon now. Now, we also find out that uh, this event, uh, Mark covers in chapter 2 and verse 1, and we know that the house uh, that they're entering into in Luke chapter 5, which is where we're beginning, we, we know that... Uh, that house is in Capernaum and that it is Simon's house because of Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. So our passage today kind of begins with these words on a certain day. And it came to pass on a certain day. Now you'll recall last week uh, we had the miracle catch of fishes and then on their way back to town they ran into a leper and was healed and that's where we left it last week. Then it said Jesus took a few days off And now on a certain day, this is just continuing on that same story. As he was teaching, we know he was in Simon's house. Uh, There was, uh, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. I was trying to find out what this doctor of the law was. Was this a Sadducee or was this a Pharisee, which were the verses in our our way of thinking. It's the conservative versus the liberals. The doctors of the law could be either, but in all probability, these doctors of the law were Pharisees and they were specialists. Uh, Later, it will talk about scribes, and they are like um, uh, secretaries that worked for the Pharisees. They're the ones that transcribed the Bible over and over, uh, and they knew their scriptures very well. And there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Already garnering the attention of religious leaders, these Pharisees were standing around waiting to see what happens next. I mean, they'd heard about the fish. They'd heard about the leper. They'd heard about the demoniac the chapter before. And they wanted to see what was going on. And if I'm reading this correctly, they came out of every town in Galilee. They came from all over, even as far away as Jerusalem. And I made a note here, and now I don't see it. It must have been in my other sheet of paper, but I think it was... I think they walked 70 miles to get there, if my memory's correct. It's either 41 or 71 miles they walked to get there to see this event, you know. These are representatives sent to check out what in the world is going on in Capernaum. Now, everything is set here for an important confrontation. Jesus is seated in the house, and he's teaching. The The house is packed with people. People are standing around on the outside. Everything's ready, and there's... The house is so packed, you know the story. Uh, Let's see if, do I have the scriptures here? The house is so packed that they couldn't get in. And as a result of not being able to get in, they went up on the roof 
broke up the roof tiles and started lowering him down through the center. And when they could not find him, by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetops and let him down through the tiling with his couch in the midst before Jesus. Now, I would expect a rebuke. I, I would, you know, if somebody kicked, of course, I'd have so much insulation that fell on my head, you wouldn't be able to see anything but the top of my head. I, there'd be a rebuke if that happened here for me. And I'm surprised Jesus wasn't upset by the thing, but he probably knew it was going to happen. But there was no rebuke. When he looked up and saw the faith, not only of the, the paralyzed man, but of the four that carried him, he said unto him, never wanting to miss an opportunity to teach, he picks a sentence that will deliberately upset the Pharisees, which is interesting. I mean, he could have said a lot of things at this point, but he chose not to. He chose to say, man, thy sins be forgiven thee. You're surrounded by ultra-conservatives who know, they understand clearly that only God can forgive sins. And he says to them, you know, they say Jesus never claimed to be God. The person that says that has never read the Bible. I can tell you that. Or they got their eyes closed the whole time. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, my sins are forgiven thee. Now, I want you to watch a couple of things here. I'm going to try to focus on the end of the chapter. There's four parables he uses to teach, and it tells us a lot about the future of the relationship of Israel and the church, and it tells us a lot about what God is doing here. So I, I think that's our main focus. But at the same time, I want you to kind of watch his at Jesus' tone and his attitude with the Pharisees at this point. In my opinion, it seems to me that he's very patient, and he's teaching, and he's trying to explain to them what's going on. He understands how difficult it is for them to see a human being stand there and declare that his sins are forgiven. And if I could become offensive just a little bit, I don't have the ability to forgive your sins. No man on earth has the ability to forgive your sins. Only God. The Pharisees understood that. This is a clear declaration to a Pharisee that this man thinks he's God. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? Now, it says they began to reason, and we understand from Mark also that they hadn't spoken this out loud. Jesus perceived their thoughts. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say thy sins be forgiven, they are to say rise up and walk. Uh, Mark tells us, in Mark chapter 2 and verse 8, I'm just going to read it. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said in them. So Mark is a little more careful in his telling of this story. All right, in terms of what Jesus was doing and what they were doing. So they kept it to themselves, but Jesus was reading, we would say, their minds. Of course, here it says he read their hearts. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, which is easier then, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this man who's been paralyzed for his entire life, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sin. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go to your home. And immediately he rose up before them 
and took up that whereon they lay, and he departed into his own house, glorifying God. And I love this next verse. And they were all amazed. Everybody in the house, everybody out of the house, including the Pharisees and the scribes that were with them, and they were filled with fear because they understood, at least momentarily, that they were in the presence of God. Or at least, if you don't want to say God, they knew they were in the presence of someone or something here that is very powerful. And they said, we have seen strange things today. Now, Matthew uh, is called after this. The word metatauta is the chapter is the, yeah, chapter is a good choice, uh, divisions in the book of uh, Revelation. Metatauta, after this, after this, after this. So, in my mind, when I read Revelation and I read Metatauta after this or after these things, I know that this is next. This came first, then this is next, then this is next, then this is next. And that works for me when I read the book of the Revelation. It's important. They're important signposts because after this, when the church age is talked about, behold, I looked and the door was open in heaven. And we know that after this church age, there is going to be a door opened in heaven and then we get to talking about the rapture and the end of times, you see. So that, that's an important point. So after this experience, Mark adds, or Luke adds, after this, Matthew is called. Matthew's call is significant and it would probably make an interesting, make an interesting sermon, but I'm basically just reading it. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican. Now that's a tax collector, a, a, a person who works for the Roman government, probably if not the most hated man in Galilee, probably pretty close to it, a publican named Levi, which was his regular name, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all and rose up and followed him, and Levi made a great feast of his own house. I love the way they did this in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the movie. Uh, tell me the name of the movie again. Uh, I'm blocking. The Chosen, thank you. Uh, he said, Jesus said to Matthew, we're going to a great feast tonight. And Matthew said, well, I'm not usually invited out to dinner much. And, he, and Jesus goes, you will be this time. And Matthew goes, oh, why? He said, because it's going to be at your house. <laughs> I've never tried that with anyone. You know, uh, said, hey, let's go to dinner. Where? Let's go to your house. You know, that, that's pretty cool. Now, apparently, still the the... the Pharisees are still following Jesus around because they're standing outside observing this dinner. And I think, eh, Matthew, close the blinds. We don't need these guys looking on. But the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Maybe they didn't have blinds. Maybe they invited him in, but I'm sure they wouldn't have come in. Uh, and Jesus answered and said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, that's just a quick phrase in this passage of a whole half of a chapter, but it's very significant. And I didn't want to gloss over it. Jesus is making a point to these Pharisees. Unless you recognize you're sick, I can't help you. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Jesus says this. Is, is it in the next one? Yeah. He says this to them. I came not to call the righteous. And 
He could have been a little blunter and said, I came not to call the self-righteous because there are none righteous, no, not one. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous. I came not to call the righteous because these guys thought they were righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you know what precedes what goes before repentance? An awareness of our own sin, our own sinfulness. There has to be an awareness of our own fallen nature before we can attempt to turn from it. You know, repentance, metanoeo, is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. We have to change our mind about something, and that something that we change our mind about is the life that we are currently living, that this is no good. This life that I'm living is no good. I need to do something. I can't do anything, but I need to do something. And as a result, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So once we recognize our own sinfulness, God, the Holy Spirit, can then call us and provide for us repentance. But until we recognize that we are indeed sin sick, Jesus can't help us. That's a frightening fact. We have to take a good look at ourselves before we're ever going to be saved. Now, what is interesting to me, at least as I read through this chapter this last week, was what happens next. Now, every time, to me, Jesus has not taken a harsh tone with these men at all. And at this point, it seems to me that he's attempting to teach them. So what you have here in their viewpoint is a common ordinary carpenter an unemployed one at that that's sitting down well he may have been standing we don't know but teaching the religious leaders from all over the area of Galilee so they ask him they're talking directly to Jesus now why don't your disciples fast now they said unto him why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. You know, you guys are partying every day. What's going on here? Now, he's going to give them four answers in the form of four parables, in my mind. Uh, when you read the commentators, they say there's one parable here, but it seems to me there's four different. I'm going to share them with you as if there were four different, and then you can decide for yourself. And he says unto them, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, you know, the, the culture in that day is to wait for the bridegroom to show up and, and take his bride. And when he does arrive, it's a time of great celebration. Now, you know, Israel had been looking forward to the Messiah for hundreds of years. How in the world, Jesus says, can we ask them to fast and put on a sorrowful face if, if, if the Messiah is here. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Do you hear the theology in this? He knew at this point that he would not be accepted as the Messiah and that the bridegroom would be taken away. There's, there's nothing that's going to take him by surprise here. And then shall they fast in those days. Now the general explanation for fasting, which I must tell you, it is not a practice I, you can probably tell, it's not a practice I, I do very often is fasting. I used to, in the old days, as a brand new Christian fast, quite frankly, I never understood the purpose of it. 
and maybe it's time to start discovering it the way our world is getting now. I don't know, but the general idea, the general explanations for a Christian fasting is, is in order that we might come away from the world, set things aside, and hear from God so that we could focus our thoughts and our hearts on the things of God or perhaps get a specific answer from God or perhaps get some direction from God. Often, spending that time that we would normally spend eating, we would spend in quiet time reading the Scriptures, hoping, hoping to hear from Him about a certain topic or something that we really needed an answer on, to get His help in a specific in a specific way. Now, the book of Acts records believers fasting often. You can find many examples of it, even though they're, this is the church age, you know. Uh, the purpose of fasting should be to take our eyes off of the things of this world to help us focus more completely on God. Although I have to tell you, the few times that I have fasted, and I think my longest fast was three days. The, the, well, of course, the doctor makes me fast every year, but that doesn't count. You know, but I mean a real a religious fast, uh, maybe three days, and all I ever thought about was eating. You know, I, I, I couldn't get my mind off of food, so it didn't work for me so well. But the purpose of fasting should be to take our eyes off the things of the world. And for me to do that, I'd have to go away somewhere. I couldn't be at home and do that, because I, all, all I can think about is this list in my head. I don't know how you are. And some people say that fasting is a way to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we're serious about seeking God's face. And that's probably true. So why wouldn't Jesus' disciples be fasting? Well, first of all, they're in the presence of God. They don't need to seek the presence of God. They're in the presence of God. They wake up in the morning with God. They eat lunch and breakfast with God. They walk with God. They're spending all their time with God, and they have no major distractions except Him. He's their number one distraction. He's the one they're paying all their attention to. And as they walk with Jesus, they're in total reliance on God. They don't wake up and say, hey, let's go fishing. They wake up and say, hey, what are we going to do today? That's exciting. Of course, if the movie The Chosen is right, sometimes they wake up and say, hey, what are we going to eat today? You know, I mean, they were dependent on Jesus for everything as they went along. That's the way they're supposed to be. That's the way we're supposed to be all the time. Why would they fast? They're already in the position that they want them in. In John chapter 15, uh, I think it's verse 3. It might be verse 4. Jesus said, stay where you're at. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear much fruit except it abide in the vine. Neither can ye except ye abide in me. You can do nothing. So when you think about that, they were in the position they needed to be. Fasting wasn't necessary while Jesus was present. Looking at it another way, after these many years of waiting, the bridegroom has finally appeared. It's a time for celebration, not sorrow. It's a time of great joy and anticipation. It's not really a time to fast. Now, you're a Pharisee and you ask this question. What is Jesus saying to you? This is not the right time. The bridegroom is here. He's saying, I am the Messiah. This is not the time to be sorrowful. This is a time to be celebrating. Furthermore, he says, second, now was that a parable in the first point? I think so. You know, he's, he's making a parallel between a wedding feast and what's going on here. I, I, para, parabole in the Greek is, balo is to throw, para is to compare something, to throw something alongside of another. And that, to me, the first thing, that was a parable. The thinking, second thing he says to me is clearly a parable. You don't patch an old garment with new cloth. I didn't know that. 
I mean, I read it in the Bible, but I didn't know that. And you know why you don't do that? It's because the two fabrics don't move at the same speed. They don't expand and contract. They don't wash. They don't clean. They don't operate the same. Likewise, he said unto him, oh, I lost my place. I'm sorry. And he spake unto them a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new, the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the garment agreeeth not with the old. What's he saying to these Pharisees? What I'm doing here is a new thing. It's not patching up an old system. You hear it? It's a very gentle rebuke of the legalistic, self-righteous attitude that the Jews had gotten into after a thousand years of attempting to keeping the law. They were an old church. They were the old cloth. The law is the old garment, and my church is the new garment. If you want to say it another way, the law is the old garment, and grace is the new. But grace hasn't been introduced yet, so he's just making a parallel. I have not come to patch up the law. Man, there's some theology in here that if you take that home and think about it, you'll realize that you can't add New Testament grace onto Old Testament law. The two can't be sewn together. This is the point. Before Israel followed the law, but the law was only a temporary fix. Even when they followed it to the letter, they had to offer sacrifices over and over and over again. Now I'm, I'm come, Jesus is saying, to provide a new covering. Not a patch, but a whole new garment for your sins. The righteousness I provide will last forever. The point is we can't add grace to law. Now a lot of churches try to do that. And a lot of churches that are getting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ don't preach the gospel, don't preach grace anymore. They're falling back to the law. They talk about living a good life and, and loving your neighbor as yourselves and doing good and putting God's first. And what are they doing? They're teaching law. They're teaching Old Testament law because they've lost the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came and paid the penalty for our sins to set us free from the penalty of the law. The point is we can't simply add grace onto the rules of the Old Testament. You can't do it. It's a whole different thing. And I want to share that with you from Paul. It's almost a doxology. If you read this over and over again, it, it probably should be sung. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. Watchman Nee would say, God didn't make it possible for us to keep the law. He lifted us above the law. So we're, we're, not, we're not responsible to keep the law. We're, we're lifted above the law for what the law could not do in that it was weak. Nothing wrong with the law now. What was wrong with us? And that it was weak through our flesh, Paul writes. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now this verse is key. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. If we take our eyes off of the law and what I have to do and what's required of me and trying to do good, and I put my eyes walking after the spirit, obeying what the Holy Spirit is providing in me or producing in me or leading me to do, the fulfillment of the law will be the result. So I will become a law keeper 
without any effort on my own by just focusing my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why they don't fast. They were with him. It's why we don't try to keep the law because the Holy Spirit produces us in us. Now you've experienced this if you're saved. You found yourself following the Holy Spirit and doing things that you never did when you were lost, selfless things. You found yourself doing good without any effort of your own. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he creates in us law keeping without effort on our part. No other effort than just simple obedience and following what he's leading us to do. Rather than replace the law, Jesus is going to fulfill the law so that there's no need to go again and again into the temple and offer sacrifices. It's a sacrifice once for all. Jesus will enter into the true temple in heaven with his own blood, Hebrews chapter 10, and offer his own blood once for all. And the, the sacrifice, the payment, is paid in full. Then in Christ, we find ourselves without any effort, I don't want to use the word without any effort because obedience is effort. But with, without any other obedience than to obey as he leads us, we find ourselves fulfilling the law. And this, Jesus said, this new system, which we call grace, grace is, is, is receiving something we don't deserve, but it's more than that. As you study grace in the New Testament, you find that grace is also the power to live the Christian life. Grace is not just an open door. It's a power source. See, this new thing that I am doing, Jesus said, can't be sewn onto an old garment. I have not come to patch up a faulty Old Testament. I've come to completely fulfill it. There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good and right and it's absolute. And yes, my teachers that I worked with in, in this county, it is written in stone. They keep saying, this isn't written in stone. This is, well, this is written in stone. Right is right and wrong is wrong, and you can't change it. God has proclaimed it. The law is just, and it's correct. What's wrong is us. We're the ones that are wrong. And through grace, God makes it possible that we could fulfill the law without our own effort. Then the third uh, parable is you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, new wine, if you search this out, not everybody's in agreement on this, but new wine is grape juice, at least according to Dr. Beeman in uh, Greek class. New wine is what we call grape juice. But grape juice that is squeezed out the way they squeezed it out still had the, the, the chemicals or the, what the, the bacteria that was necessary to start fermentation. So if you took this new grape juice, this... What do we do with it? I think we boil it uh, to make the grape juice not ferment. But they didn't do that. And if you pour that into a skin, like the stomach of a sheep that's been cleansed carefully and all the holes sewn up, and you put that in there, and you put that in there and it starts to ferment, the, the skin will expand way out and it will actually allow the gas to escape. But if you put that in an old wine skin, that thing blows up. It's like if you ever made sour mash, which believe it or not, I have, and you cork the bottle too tightly, the, the, if the cork doesn't pop out, the bottle will break. You have to allow for the gases to escape. That new wine will continue to expand as the fermentation process isn't over. Now, there's some interesting parallels in that that I don't even know if I'm capable of discussing. 
But God is doing something new in our lives. That's the point. And this new thing is an expansive process. It doesn't, you're not a finished project product when you're first saved. He's building something in you by the presence of his Holy Spirit. And it's expansive. You're growing. You're more today than you were five days ago. You're more today than you were five years ago. God is at work in your life. If you don't sense that, if you don't sense that growth process, God is not in your life. It's an expansive process. God is turning, has turned from the nation of Israel and put his vision on the whole world because Israel shrunk up dry and they would not do what God wanted them to do. Even though Israel was commissioned from the beginning to go into the whole world and share the truth of God, they focused on keeping the law and how right they were, and they took their eyes off the world and they didn't want anything to do with the world. They became inflexible, unwilling to share God, certainly unwilling to allow Gentiles into their church. There's no way they would allow that to happen, to allow Gentiles. Oh, they, they, that was the worst thing they could think of. It's a sad truth that Israel lost all its flexibility. But that's what Jesus is saying here. What I'm doing now won't fit into the old system. You couldn't take a church filled with grace that's reaching out to people all over the world and pour them into the Jewish synagogue. Your synagogue would explode. You just can't do it. See, you can't pour the Holy Spirit in your life and stay the same. If you try to walk in the old life after having been saved, you'll explode. And if you pour all these brand new believers into a Jewish synagogue, they'll explode. Now, it's a sad truth that this is true for churches as well as synagogues. It's a sad truth that the longer, and I know my own self, I'm, I'm stiff, I'm dried out, and I'm inflexible. And I, I find that to be a truth the longer I walk in the Lord. And it's why whenever in history you see a revival, like you study revivals, you'll find the revivals often start, I, I want to say always, but I, don't, I can't say that's true. I want to say they often start with the young people. Because all of us oldsters are thinking, well, we never did it this way before. You know, we don't like this new music or we, we, we don't believe that should be in the church or, you know, and we go on and on. And I mean, that's that's so common. It's just you're, you're used to hearing it anytime change starts to happen. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. And that's why he has to do that. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. And the final thing, which is equally astute, would be a good choice of words. Jesus just saw this so clearly. Men that are accustomed to old wine don't immediately desire the new. You know, I like the old songs. I like the old way church services used to be held. And there's a lot of churches where that's where they're comfortable. And we all go where we're comfortable. So Jesus is telling these Pharisees, don't worry about it. It's hard. No man having drunk old wine straightway desires the new. For he will say, the old is better. And I'll bet Pharisees were saying that for the next 300 years as they got around Christians. I really like the old way we used to worship. I really don't think women should be in the congregation. I, I really... I really think they should be in a room of their own, you know, and they just, that's just the way we always did things. And, and it's tough. You get accustomed to one way of doing something and it's tough. 
These are good points that Jesus is making here. You know, you, you can't patch the old system. You have to start over. You can't pour new wine into an old wineskin. And you can't expect people who have been Christians a long time, and he's speaking to Pharisees, you can't expect to openly embrace something new. It's just the character of human nature. Four great lessons about what's about to happen. I'm about to make a whole new wardrobe for the church. I'm about to pour an energizing spirit into the church so much so that it is going to explode. And you're not going to like it. If they went home and thought about what he said, that's their message. It's not, you're not going to be comfortable with it. It's not easy. But understand this. You know, I, I'm looking at what's happening in the world today and I have to tell you, I'm not happy with the changes I'm seeing. But just like back in that day, in our day to day, we have to understand God is at work. God is doing something here. And we have to get in line with what's going on and seek His wisdom on how we should best respond. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to share your scriptures and the, the joy of, of standing before your people and sharing your word. Father, our prayer is that we would become more flexible and that as we see what's coming before us in our world today, that we would be of a help to you and not a hindrance. Father, we pray that everyone within the sound of my voice is truly born again and has experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the changes and the expansions in our life that you have brought. We pray it, Father, that anyone within the sound of my voice, Father, that has not experienced what I'm saying would bow their heads even now and would pray, Lord, I don't know what he's talking about, but I want to know. Please, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me, I pray in Jesus' name. And I know that if they'll pray that prayer, you will start them on a whole new road, a whole new garment in Jesus' name. Amen.